Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. It's time to sit back. We're uh, several weeks after the elections, and the parties that are going to form the new coalition are uh, hammering out what the policies of the new government will be, and they'll present all of this to the president, and hopefully they will be told to go ahead and try to have their government accepted by the Knesset, the parliament, and then maybe we'll get down to business. But I think it's time to step back and see what takeaway we have from the election and perhaps compare it to the American election, which is quite different. In the final analysis, the recent Israeli elections were more emotional than most Israeli elections. We've had a lot of elections in the last couple of years. I think it's five in two and a half years. And it seems that the people were more tired and just didn't want to vote anymore. And it looks like it just was the other way around. The people were more invested than they had been in years. Although um, it seems the Israelis were exhausted from the constant campaigning, and we thought they'd be apathetic to voting, it turns out that the final voter turnout was the most robust in over 20 years, which includes the five elections in the last two and a half years. And by the way, the money spent on the elections, and we're talking millions and millions of shekels, really, it's really sinful. That money could go to much, much better uh, purposes. This uh, particular last election uh, was kind of nasty. The rhetoric was ferocious, and people demonized, demonized the candidates, the parties, and uh, perhaps it could well be that when you say something negative about one of the candidates, it could well be that what you're saying is true. <laughs> but that's sort of immaterial, even if it were true. The idea of a nasty campaign, it's really, it's, it's really not nice. Now, voting in an Israeli election was not as contentious over the years as this last election was. The uh, Jews saw voting for the Knesset as a privilege, a blessing, and an opportunity. For the first time in 2,000 years, Jews could exercise the right to determine their own future in their own land. And by the way, I don't remember seeing, but I heard that in the the opening years of the States, people coming from various countries, for example, from Iraq or from Yemen, countries where there there were no elections, there were people who came to the uh, vote uh, dressed in their Shabbat vest. Some came wearing talesi, 
prayer shuls. Some came with their children to show what it was like. Obviously, people from the West, like myself, to us was not only just another, not just another election. I don't mean it that way. It's important. It was an Israeli election, but the bottom line was an election. And, and I, coming from the United States, where I never saw a ballot box. All I had seen was voting machines. And the way it works in is that there are no ballot boxes. You walk in. Uh, it's, it, uh, just explain to the listeners what happens in order to keep the election kosher, if you will. You show up at the voting place. You show your uh, identity card, which all Israelis carry. You uh, show it to the people behind the desk. Seating behind the desk are representatives of the p- political parties, as well as p- representatives of the government, who are there to ensure that the wedding, that the uh, voting is done uh, according to law and so forth. And of course, outside, you have people who are trying to get you to vote for their party. Some of them have real nice delicacies and drinks because somehow they seem to think that if they give you a glass of uh, tomato juice, you're going to vote for their candidates. Uh, I don't know who gives them that idea, but this is the reality of elections in Israel. Now, no matter what the coalition is formed, and it's in the process right now, uh, during this week, and no matter what policies the government enacts, it is assumed that almost half the nation will be opposed to what's going on. They will not support the new government. And by the way, I think that's pretty similar in the United States, that they're roughly broken down half Democratic and half Republican, but here here is those who are part of the coalition, those who support the coalition, versus those who are not part of the coalition and don't support it. So uh, it's assumed that almost half the nation won't, won't be supporters, disappointed, and they might even be angry at the results. But as a matter of fact, uh, addressing Americans' Jewish Federation's General Assembly Our president, Herzog, said, I am aware of the questions posed in many Jewish communities around the world about the outcome of the elections. The results may or not be to your liking, but the vote of the Israeli people has to be accepted. Now, uh, this is a nice message. That's the way it is. For example, many people, and I include myself, were supportive of Israel and even came on Aliyah, although we were opposed almost violently against the policies of the labor government. And after I, I was sort of opposed to them before I came because that I thought knew what, what they were. But I came here and had to live under those policies. I became more opposed to them. That has nothing to do with my feelings toward the state of Israel. Uh, I served in the army under a labor government, and I couldn't, um, my idea was to defend the country and then, whenever possible, do things that will kick this government out, which, as I said, eventually uh, 
went up on a dustbin of political history. So the, uh, the, the there are people around the world, the Jews particularly, um, that the coalition will be formed will have different views than the liberal views of most Americans. And the chances are this is going to be true, because as it stands now, the, um, the uh, new government is going to be composed of the Likud, which is a more or less central, uh, central party. They claim that they're to the right, but they aren't. They're maybe a little bit to the right. Then the National Religious Party combined with a party called Otsma Yehudid, and uh, they'll be in the government, and um, the religious parties. Now, I don't want to go into the details of what I think about all the parties, but the general feeling I have, and I think history will prove it, that the religious parties are there to get benefits for their voters, and they really don't care about foreign affairs or other issues. They're there to get the money to pay for the education, and they have very, very large schools and a lot of kids studying, many of whom are from poor homes, and the government has to supply the education. Now, uh, the division between the Jewish people is concerning. However, what's more concerning is alienation. It's really very worrying. Israel cannot become a nation where citizens and advocates feel alienated because their political opponents win an election. Israel must also be concerned with the inclusion of diaspora Jewry, not as voters, but essentially as people affected by the policies of the government. It cannot allow Jewish communities around the world to feel disenfranchised from the Jewish state. As more and more Jews move to Israel, and more Jews are born in Israel, the center of global Jewry will quickly become Israel. That's, uh, that's for sure. Now, this will change Israel's role and its relationship with the diaspora with Jews living outside of Israel. Israel uh, will become a, a, a nation that's a leading force and it must maintain a strong relationship, relationships with those that it hopes to lead. And that includes diaspora jury. There's another point to be made. After the election, there are Zionists who have become, become apologists for Israel. They recognize how many friends of Israel don't support candidates and parties who did well in this past election, and they'll try to explain it away. <coughs> this is not an approach that best demonstrates Israeli sovereignty. Every democracy experiences a wide variety of elected leaders, and some will always be objectionable. These are the facts of life. Israel is no different 
and it does need to make excuses for its normative democratic practice. What happens in Israel is what happens in every democratic country. Supporting Israel does not mean making excuses for it. Supporting Israel means being proud of its successes and acknowledging its mistakes. Israelis, Zionists, and friends of Israel, all religions, need to move forward in a healthy way. The Israeli people have voted and expressed their preferences. Hopefully, they will now have a stable government. At this point, lovers of Israel need to stop the campaign-style hyperbole and end-of-the-world forebodings. Worrying about Israel's future and protesting the uh, objectionable policies at any given moment is simply not healthy. <coughs> Excuse me. When everything is an emergency and everything made to be an existential threat, truth threats become indistinguishable from false overstatements and aren't sufficiently addressed. Now, since its establishment, Israel has faced many threats, including internal dangers. While many of these threats come to fruition, unfortunately, and harm is caused, Israel has, thank God, survived them all and its people came out stronger. Israelis have learned many lessons the hard way, really. Israelis are well tested to face foreign and domestic challenges. <clears throat> so it's time for Israelis to wait to see how this coalition behaves, the makeup of the coalition, the policies it will pursue. They, those who support the policies can advocate for them, and those oppose the policies of the new government to make sh work hard to make sure that their policies, the ones they don't agree with, are not acted into law. As a policy is a policy, it drives the politicians. But once it becomes a law, it's not a policy anymore. It's a law. So over those last two and a half years of all these elections, some Israelis have maintained and the question the norm of maintaining the British system of parliamentary democracy. With each election resulting in an even split of sides and a challenge of forming coalitions, some, think, some people think that they should reformat Israel's electoral system. Now, one of the great benefits of the parliamentary system, the official role of the opposition in systems without a role for the opposition, politics becomes partisan. In Israel's system, the opposition has a meaningful role to play. They show the other side of each issue in a constructive manner. That is what happens in England. And by the way, I, tr I myself believe the system has to be changed by dividing the country into local areas and have uh, each area elect its own representatives, like in the United States. Maybe I'll address that uh, issue um, in more detail another time.
However, the uh, if if there, you now have a situation where you don't really have an official uh, um, opposition like in England. I mean, they are in opposition, but they don't have a certain official status. Instead of instead of becoming a purely a partisan opposition, where all kind of hyperbole and points point scoring becomes the normative, normative, Israel must aim higher. We've waited two thousand years, and we have to aim higher. We must become a nation of civil political discussion, where citizens talk to each other with respect. Those who support the government must value the opposition's role and see them as an opposition, not as an enemy. Those who oppose the government must take the role of opposition, loyal opposition. They love the word in England, His Majesty or Her Majesty's loyal opposition. They're not partisan players trying to score points against the ruling coalition. That is a, um, what I'm afraid is the history so far of Israel, and unfortunately I'm afraid that it's going to continue. The bottom line is, Israel is a wonderful country, it's an amazing country, and the people here are amazing people. There's so much that Zionists have to be proud of achieving. The, uh, the uh, baseless division never is healthy for the Jewish people. We can point at a lot of things that happened historically where, where Jews didn't get along with each other and enemies took over. During this time in the Second Temple, because the Jews couldn't get along with each other, they call in the Roman rulers to settle the problem, and we all know what that led to. It has led to the greatest tragedies like destruction of the temple uh, and uh, the kind of things like that. We On the day after um, Rosh Hashanah, we have a fast called the Fasting of Gedalia, when Gedalia, who was appointed uh, governor of Israel, governor of Palestine, after the Babylonians uh, took over the country, Yudayu was appointed uh, the head of the country, and he was more or less a puppet for the Babylonians. That's immaterial. He was assassinated, and it brought total ruin on the Jewish people. So we've had that already. The uh, We don't want the Jewish people split. To ensure its success, Israelis don't have to agree on everything, but they must adjust to disagreeing civilly and with respect. More than any other domestic issue, becoming a civil society will be Israel's greatest challenge moving forward. Zionism was always meant to be a revolutionary uniting force for the Jewish people and its adherents and they must make sure it's always true to its mission. It's not always easy, but nothing really worthwhile is ever easy. Having a Jewish state and having a Jewish politics isn't easy, but it certainly is worthwhile. So that's my takeaway from the election. And next week probably we'll know more about what kind of government we're going to have. 
I'll be back after the break. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is a radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. Hello again, you're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to start this segment of the program with two items that describe something that's happening here in Israel and which does not get large headlines. Uh, they appear, the first uh, article which I want to share with you appears on page three of one of the local papers. And the next article, slightly different subject, appears on page four. In other words, if you, they don't get the big headlines, but I think at least one of them, if not both, are important for the listeners to know about. So let's start with the first one. The outgoing defense minister, his name is Benny Gantz, and he spoke uh, last week, and he said the following, I hope that we will no, not see a higher level of violence that we have seen so far that will start in Jerusalem and radiate to the West Bank, Gaza, and perhaps also to the northern area. He is worried that the violence by Palestinians can lead to another outbreak of clashes with the countries, within the country's mixed cities, similar to what happened during the operation in Gaza back in May 2021. He went on to say, I hope that this will not happen, but given the current reality, it is not an impossible scenario. Now, the Israel Army, IDF, began operation what they call Break the Wave in April uh, after a wave of deadly terror attacks inside Israel claimed the lives of 20 people. Now, over 2,000 Palestinians have been arrested, arrested by Israeli security forces in raids, and more than 125 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank and East Jerusalem this year, marking a significant increase in casualties uh, compared to previous years. Last year, 76 Palestinians were killed and 20 were killed by Israeli fire in 2020. Now, the, um, on, on last week, a 17-year-old uh, Arab was shot and killed by soldiers near the Joseph's tomb in Nablus, uh, what we call Shechem, as he tried to throw an explosive device. In other words, a 17-year-old kid wasn't throwing stones. He was throw, tried to throw an explosive device. Now, while Hamasism remained relatively quiet in Gaza, the terror group continues to incite Palestinians in the West Bank and even Arab Israelis in the south of Israel, in the Negev. In May of 2021, 
there were 520 outbreaks of violence. They were reported throughout Israel. Three, three people were killed, hundreds were injured, and there were about 3,200 arrests. About 48 million Israeli shekels in damage were caused to civilian property, and 10 million uh, shekels in damage caused to police property. Now, politicians and defense establishment have warned that a similar situation could occur in any future conflict. What happens in one place does not necessarily remain there. So this is a challenge that Israel's security forces will have to continue to deal with. With the Palestinian issue being a critical part of the country's security, the Defense Ministry worked to reduce the conflict as much as possible with the Palestinians and actually met several times with the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Now, our Defense Minister has not decided if he will meet with him again ahead of his leaving office. He said, and it's interesting, he said, I came to talk with whoever is with whoever it is possible and to fight whoever is necessary. The two are not mutually exclusive. But steps that the Palestinians are currently taking in the Hague and the UN are serious that are harming their ability to improve the situation in the region and do not serve their interests. This is very interesting. You see, this is, this is not get headlines. Hundreds are killed, thousands uh, are ar arrested, and this is sort of daily life here on, in Israel and uh, on its borders with the, um, the Palestinian Authority. These, this is, these are the hard facts of life that one doesn't read or hear much about. You don't see it on the morning news, you don't see it on the um, nightly news, but exists. When you th hear these numbers, thousands arrested, um, uh, hundreds of outbreaks of violence, this is the reality of living in Israel. And there are mixed cities, and thank God, so this last May, the big cities, the mixed cities have been quiet, but they could break loose at any moment. I think it's important for people to know these things which are under the headlines. The other um, item which appeared in a, somewhere in one of the papers has to do uh, with um, the uh, use of armed drones. This is very interesting. I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, some of my grandchildren are involved because they don't tell me what they're up to. <coughs> but anyhow, what happened, uh, the news is that a, um, a commander of the army described what's been an open secret apparently for two decades, that Israel has used drones, not just for surveillance, but also in strikes within the country against Palestinian terrorists in Gaza and possibly targets as far away as Iran or Sudan. So now... What happened was, in July, censors permitted publication of information 
about the armed drones and the chief of the Ar artillery corps, uh, which operates the drones together with the air force, uses his speeches at an industrial forum to give what he described as first public account of the armed versions of the pilotless less aircraft. And the, um, whereas previously, the spokesman for the Air Force would sort of hint about things. But he said uh, last week, and now I can speak about this openly. Uh, he said this at the uh, annual UVID Drone Tech Conference hosted by Israel Defense Magazine in Tel Aviv. Now, he said that the armed drones not only provide Israel additional firepower, but also allow in a single platform for both the speedy detection and attack against targets such as Gaza rocket crews before they can carry out a launch. And then, interestingly enough, he went on to disclose that when jihadi insurgents of Egypt burst across the border into southern Israel in a hijacked armor vehicle back in May of 2012, we're talking uh, uh, 10 years ago, these Egyptians were destroyed in a drone strike. And he also, in this uh, program, showed footage of Ukrainian forces using drones to guide shell of invading Russian troops. And um, so apparently what's happening is it's a whole new world. Israel's expanding its drone forces. Uh, by the way, uh, he remarked that the drones, which are have no pilot, they're directed by, uh, by um, troops uh, in various places, uh, mostly underground and protected, but most of the personnel... Um, are, are men, that's uh, true, 70%, but 30% of the people and soldiers involved in drones are female. So uh, so that's interest. The, uh, the, uh, the p p uh, commander of a, an air base at Palmachim, which is just south of Jerusalem, said the drones now account for 80% of the Israeli army operational flight hours. So uh, it's interesting, manufacturers of the armed drones remained barred from advertising them, and none, none of them was among the models on display. Uh, the, the, um, there are information security concerns. The... Um, Drone exports are apparently popular abroad, including among Arab countries, and even those that have drawn close to the Israel since 2020. The, uh, but it's interesting, really, the drone exports were popular. In other words, Israel is explore, uh, uh, um, sending drones, exporting drones, to Arab countries with whom we have friendly relations. So the, the fact that this appeared on the back pages of a newspaper is sort of mind-boggling when you really think about it. I mean, this is, to my, my uh, idea, my concept, this is really big news. But uh, and I wanted to share it 
uh, with the uh, listeners. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Now, there have been a lot of elections in the last couple of weeks that are of interest. One, of course, in the United States and the other in Israel. So those who follow political events in both the countries have been blessed or cursed this month with not one but two sets of elections. In Israel, we're supposed, in theory, to experience a short period of intense election campaigns followed by a few years of respite. Unfortunately, the political situation in Israel has brought us nearly four years of seemingly nonstop election cycles. There was an American Jewish Congress, and uh, American Jewish Congress, uh, and uh, they discussed this, a bunch of scholars, and um, they talk about a thesis that initial election choices are based on foreign affairs and security, while in the United States they're based on economics. This is a well-known theory, but it may not be true. In most cases, people actually vote based on their identity. In the United States, this is visibly clear with red states and blue states, or red and blue districts and so forth. In other words, Tell me where you are from and your family background, and I can likely guess who you voted for in the last election. Now, here in Israel, on the contrary, most of us vote according to our tribe, which usually falls among Jewish religious lines. Are we religious? Are we secular? Are we traditional? Are we ultra-Orthodox? And uh, not to mention, of course, the question of whether one's Jewish or Arab. Uh, and uh, and so um, the the, the uh, this probably has a greater influence on our voting choices than any of the uh, important issues raised by the expert panelists at all kind of conferences. As a result of the endless election cycle in Israel, we've seen an increase in tension between different groups and the strengthening of the walls that separate them. This is not good. The competition between the parties and the campaigns built on the basic feelings of fear of the other, desire to protect the borders of the tribe, encourage and increase the phenomenon, implant in our consciousness a zero-sum gain in which any profit the others make will necessarily come at the cost of ourselves. Now, this is what people, some people feel this way. I don't really know if I have a strong opinion in this matter. Now, uh, the, it's interesting, by the way, we can relate this to our Torah reading. And in uh, the Torah portion read last Shabbat, it begins with the words, And the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your birthplace and from your father's house. So Abraham is commanded to leave the tribe, leave the homeland, leave the heritage, 
leave the familiar landscape and the human environment and leave the language in which he was raised. He's also commanded to leave his father's house, his family, and to leave the people closest to him who have shaped and influenced him. As soon as Abraham sets out on his journey, he encounters many different nations. His journey symbolizes the beginning of a Jewish journey that spans hundreds of years, a journey that will wander between all the countries and peoples of the world for thousands of years, cross countries, borders, dozens of languages, and influence and be influenced by hundreds of cultures. There is no so much beauty in this Jewish journey like a stream that flows and collects with its souvenirs from so many landforms and constantly changes direction and reshapes the land. So that, that is something I, I really find extremely fascinating. And I really think that... Uh, what, what we should do now, because election year is, was extremely bitter, the uh, I think that the if we have if we recall Abraham's journey, we cope with various elections and their aftermath. I invite us to engage in the practice of post-election healing. So we really have to step outside of our communities around us. We should be open. We should realize there's room for many opinions and beliefs. And maybe we can find some kind of harmony among our tribes. We are a country of 7 million Jews plus 2 million people who are not Jewish. We are surrounded by enemies. And I really fear that the bitterness of the election cycle, which it really was bitter, will carry over into other areas of life. I think this is going to be particularly true now because apparently the government is about to be about to be set up. It's going to be made of one major party, Likud, and the National Religious Party, which is, which is more or less secular in a sense. It's religious, but it's not way far right religious. And then you have a bunch of uh, right-wing parties, right-wing religiously, uh, which we call uh, here, they're called Haredi. But what happens is that a government set, uh, set up in this manner is going to have a lot of people who are opposed to it, not because of what its policies are, but because of what its composition is. They've already made up their minds that they don't like being governed by these kind of people. That's a serious problem, <coughs> Excuse me, which I don't know if it uh, exists in other countries. I'm not an expert on politics in the various countries uh, around the world. I know, for example, as I understand it, a uh, country like uh, France is a Catholic country. But they don't take their religion too seriously. To the best of my knowledge, there's no there are no religious parties in France. The uh, the uh, nation of Great Britain is uh, ruled and, and and symbolically by a king who's also the head of the Anglican Church. But these things don't really matter in those countries. Here in Israel, they're taken very seriously, and I hope 
that this does not harm our future. We really have to learn how to get along. And this, the new government and the opposition, and the opposition to it are going to be a real test for Israel. I'll be back after the break. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I want to say a few words about the UN and how it voted last week to seek an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice on the illegality of Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories on the grounds that it could be considered de facto annexation. This resolution specifically asked the uh, International Court of Justice for an opinion on the status of Jerusalem, one of the most volatile and contentious points of discord between Israel and the Palestinians. Also, as expected, the broad range resolution also ignored any Jewish ties to its holiest place, the site, the Temple Mount, referring to it solely by its Muslim name, Aharam al-Sharif, which means the noble sanctuary. This is ridiculous, anti-Semitic and dangerous, but it's also not surprising. The vote came just a few days after the head of religious Zionist party in Israel demanded as part of a coalition negotiation with the presumptive incoming prime minister Netanyahu that Israeli settlements be governed by the relevant ministries rather by the army civil administration of Judea and Samaria. This is a very, very big difference. Israeli towns in Judea and Samaria are governed under a military government, uh, and Smotrich seeks to entirely remove settlements and administrate uh, the army's jurisdiction while leaving an intact for governing Palestinians in the Area C, which is under both civil and security control, a move akin to extending Israel's sovereignty to those parts of the West Bank and a step toward annexation. In other words, according to the Oslo Agreement, the uh, West Bank, if you will, was divided into sections A, B, and C, and the Area C was supposed to be under Jewish settlement, the area A is primarily under the Palestinian Authority, and I don't quite remember what B is, but the the military, the Israeli military had a central jurisdiction over all three areas, and, and now what the National Religious Party head is saying, do we want to have this Jewish area taken out from under the army's administration and put under civilian administration which be, would be a step toward annexing, annexing the area to Israel. Now, the, Arab, the Palestinians, the, uh, it's interesting. It, it, it raises questions. Why the UN vote is dangerous for Israel since it comes at a time where moves may actually go in that direction, making Israel and Israelis vulnerable to uh, potential war crimes charges and prosecution. 
If Israeli control of the West Bank is deemed illegal by the UN, will IDF officers or center be able to travel overseas? Will they be at at risk of possible arrest? What about Israelis who live, just live in the West Bank? Will those half a million people come under an unprecedented legal threat from the United United Nations? So this is, uh, again, one of those items that's on the back burner, but it's really quite important. And how the new government proceeds will determine much for the future of the state of Israel. Under this incoming government, the uh, Netanyahu is always reluctant to make radical moves in the West Bank and impo- embrace the policy that is more about maintaining the conflict and minimizing or trying to resolve it. Now, uh, now, Israel may want to de- define what it wants to do, or what, uh, one state, two states, or something else, it has to be done with forward thinking, not just because someone is politi- something is politically expedient today. The reasons that have nothing to do with the best interests of the nation. We'll have to wait and see. Our prime minister, our incoming prime minister, Netanyahu, had 12 consecutive years in the prime minister's office. And amid an ongoing corruption trial... He is set to return to the prime ministership after a victory in the country's fifth election in under four years. No matter what one thinks of Israel's longest-serving prime minister, there is no doubt, according to the experts even, that his victory is quite remarkable. Note, not only... Is this the third time he's in power after an enormous setback? But he appears, at least on paper, to have broken Israel's political deadlock because he has a block of 64 votes of the Knesset's 120 seats. You need 61 to have a majority. But 64 is much safer majority. Now, it has been commented that things are never so simple with Netanyahu. He is relying, relying on extremists, several other parties. He's relying on them for victory. And as a result, this will pose unprecedented challenges to, to him, and a failure to contain these radicals and the other parties could end up in a domestic and diplomatic disaster for Israel. Now, for example, likely to be the second largest bloc beside the Likud, his party, the second largest bloc in the coalition will uh, be the Religious Zionist Party, the RZP, which the, has combined with Otsma Yehudit Party and another anti-LGBT party called Noam. Most concerning to most people in this alliance is the head of the Otsma Yehudit head, uh, 
Itamar Ben-Gvir. Now it's interesting that Ben-Gvir was disqualified from Israel's compulsory military service uh, due to his extremist record. He was a follower of Mayor Kahana, and interestingly enough, he went around on all kind of uh, right-wing demonstrations, so he was a tremendous activist. But interestingly enough, as I said, he's an activist who now runs to the scene of any terrorist um, uh, activity and comforts and helps the victims. So he's a person with tremendous energy. Um, he was convicted of incitement to racism, and he was convicted of supporting a terrorist organization. Until 20, 2020, he had a photo, photograph of Baruch Goldstein, who massacred 29 Muslims in Hebron. Uh, he had a, a picture of him hung in his home. To, uh, to my mind, what happened then when Goldstein was murdered after the massacre, it's still in doubt exactly what happened in the mosque in Hebron when the massacre took place. Until recently, the kind of extremism that is exhibited by uh, Ben-Gvir was condemned to Israel's fringe. But after alienating only mainstream allies, Netanyahu turned to these parties in the hope of co cobbling together a parliamentary majority and at the same time quashing his criminal charges. Now, he actually ran a moderate campaign and in his campaign, he tapped into very real Israeli traumas uh, because of all the terrorism that's been going on in the last year and a half. So his popularity skyrocketed. Now, it could well be that Ben Gvir may soon be Israel's next public security minister, which, among other things, would hand him control over the police. Now, that's quite interesting, because earlier this week, met for the first time with the police chief. As I said, Ben Greer is expected to become the next public security minister, and he met with the police inspector general, a man named Jakob Shaptai, on Monday for the first time since the election. The two shook hands, sat next to each other, sat next to each other at a ceremony in memory of a police counterterrorism unit member uh, named Noam Raz, who was killed in a shootout with terrorists near Jenin in May. Shabtai, the Inspector General, will be responsible for carrying out Ben Gvir's policy some of which are controversial, such as giving immunity to police officers from legal prosecution and changing the rules of engagement. So uh, the interesting 
Earlier, Ben-Gvir met with former U.S. Ambassador to Israel, David Friedman. So the uh, things are in flux, and the truth of the matter is they're quite interesting. There's never a dull moment in uh, Israeli politics or in Israel. Now, together with the religious Zionist Party's leader, Bezalo Smutrich, and the head of the Noam Party, Avi Maoz, the bloc's stated goal, which include radical judicial reform, deporting disloyal Israelis, and anti-LGBTQ legislation. All this could send Israel down a questionable path in how it will be supported by other countries. Now, the government is yet to be formed. Uh, what happened was the uh, Netanyahu was given the um, mandate to form a government. The government has not yet been formed, who have various positions, but the parties in the government we already know. The, uh, the Jewish state's closest ally has expressed concern. In September, U.S. Senator and Chairman of Foreign Relations Committee Bob Menendez of New Jersey warned Netanyahu that including Ben Gvir and his coalition could harm U.S.-Israel relations. Now, truth of the matter is, when you think about, to the best of my knowledge, Israelis have never commented who the American president has chosen to be his cabinet ministers. I may be wrong in that, but you can ask yourself, why is an American senator giving warnings or any kind of conditions to who should, on who should be part of Israeli government? I assume it was said in a friendly manner. The, uh, the, uh, it, is, it could be that the Biden administration will likely boycott any extremist politician, but what would that really mean? I don't know. Now, it turns out that the United States uh, isn't uh, Israel's only ally disturbed by Netanyahu's hardline partners. On November 3rd, a spokesman for British Prime Minister called on all Israeli parties to refrain from inflammatory language and demonstrate tolerance and respect for minority groups. Again, you could ask, to my knowledge, I don't know if any Israeli prime minister has ever commented to a British prime minister who should be in the British government. Now, now, the, the U.S. State Department recently blasted Ben Greer's attendance at a memorial for Mayor Kahana. The U.S. government said it was abhorrent. So all signs point to a more rocky relationship with the West should Ben Greer and company take up senior ministerial positions in Israel's next government. And again, um, have a, the news has commented on this, but again, I ask, has Israel ever commented 
on who is in the government of any foreign nation? I really don't know. I tend to believe that not. Now, Netanyahu is aware of all this, uh, the attitude of these uh, other countries toward having people in the Israeli government who they consider radical. And so the question will be how he's hand, how Netanyahu handles his hardline allies for whom he himself really has little sympathy, but he needed them to form his government. They might uh, try to hold him hostage to their demands in return for legislation to hold his corruption trial. That, um, in other words, there is a corruption trial for uh, Netanyahu, and it could well be these other parties will make their demands based on the condition that they support him in getting rid or ending these corruption trials. It's hard to know yet. The uh, most of them would be stuck on the sidelines without Netanyahu taking them into the new government. So you have a question here of political give and take. Now it turns out that uh, the Netanyahu wields enormous power over proposed legislation. So deals, political deals, uh, are always going to be happen. Now, now, despite partnering with partner partnering with extremists, some so-called experts believe Netanyahu will be reluctant to accept their extremist demands. The uh, one of one of the experts said that contrary to his reputation abroad, Netanyahu uh, is one of Israel's most cautious leaders. Doesn't want to become an international pariah. Uh, his recent actions have hinted at this with Netanyahu reportedly promising to block any anti-LGBTQ legislation. At an event two weeks before the election, Netanyahu infuriated Ben Gvir after refusing to step onto the stage until Ben Gvir left. That happened a couple of weeks ago in Kwar Chabad. This is... Uh, appears to be part of a deliberate election tactic by Netanyahu not to be photographed with any far-right extremists. Now, now, in internal the discussions within Netanyahu's Likud party suggests increasing frustration with Ben Gvir. The, uh, one of the newspapers reported the Israeli right is already uncomfortable with the scale of its own victory. Now, this all points to what is gearing up to be an immensely unhappy but politically necessary marriage between Netanyahu and his new partners. Many onlookers believe the master politician can subdue the dangerous fantasies that will be pushed in his coalition. After all, 
Netanyahu, a master politician, is also simply a human being who can make mistakes, particularly when he is under pressure due to the fact that he's, um, he has this question uh, of um, coming up in the courts about some of his personal activities, the corruption charges. Desperate, he'll be desperate to escape his corruption charges, but reliant on his coalition partners to do so. So, he may soon be find himself forced to put up with policies intolerable to most of Israel and to Israel's allies. Whether this turns out to be the one move that causes irreparable damage to both Netanyahu and the Jewish state remains to be seen. And by the way, along the same lines, Ben Greer, who uh, was known as a radical, he ended up not even being allowed to be in the, in the army because of his radicalism, has obviously over the last 20 years modified his position. Responsibility, and particularly governmental responsibility, brings moderation. And this is the first time that Ben Greer will be in a government, a member of the government. So I think it might be too early to say all these uh, things about him since we don't know how, how and if he will moderate his positions. My personal feeling is, my personal opinion, is that responsibility brings moderation. By the way, it's interesting. The only exception I know, I'm not, I'm not a historian, but the only exception I know to that rule was uh, Hitler. Said terrible things, and he, uh, it was expected that when he became the head of the German government, he would moderate his positions, but it turns out he just continued in his react radical opinions and his radical actions. So it could well be that Hitler is the exception that proves the rule. As far as Ben Gvir is concerned, we simply have to wait and see. It's too early to rush to judgment, although people love to do that kind of thing. So in the few minutes left in this uh, section, I just want to say something quickly. Um, it's been, uh, Russia made an incursion into Ukraine, and um, in the Baltic capitals of Lithuania and Latvia, there's been a lot of uh, uh, comment about uh, the uh, the position of Jews there, and uh, there are some Jewish memorials there. So what I'll do, uh, because this uh, uh, this is a subject that uh, has a lot of details in it, uh, I'll wait until the start of the next section, and then I'll say a few words about what's happening on the ground 
in, in Vilna and in Riga uh, as far as the Jewish community is concerned. They were once among the greatest Jewish communities in the world. They were just about utterly destroyed by the Nazi occupation, and the Nazis were supported by local anti-Semites. And in many cases, for example, there were Latvian and, um, and, and Ukrainian, for example, guards in Nazi concentration camps, and to a certain extent, their attitude and their behavior toward the Jews was worse than the Nazis themselves. The Nazis had to be taught to be anti-Semites. The others had this in their blood and in their education. So I'll say more about this at the beginning of the next segment of the program. I'll be right back. You think you can get real news about Israel from major news sources located far away from Israel? Think again. Get it from the source. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. New sustainable technologies, including electric vehicles, are being developed to help improve our lives and the health of the planet. These technologies require new materials that are stronger, lighter, and built in a manner that is both sustainable and cost-effective. An Israeli company called Nemo Nanomaterials is working on non-carbon-based industrial additives, enabling next-generation performance and properties for a variety of material-based applications for a wide range of industrial materials, including plastics, composites, and coatings. Many components require electromagnetic interference shielding to prevent interference that could cause serious failures in electric car steering, engine, and braking, enhancing plastics with features of metals for fluid supply lines, battery casings, internal and structural components could help you travel safer. For more information on the high-tech world today, visit IsraelTechTalk.com. With your INTR Tech Minute, I'm Bob Aiello. At the end of the previous segment of the program, I mentioned uh, something about the uh, cities of Vilna, or what is called Vilnius, and Riga, which are the capitals of Lithuania and Latvia. And I read a report by a woman who had visited there several weeks ago, and I, I found it personally of interest because uh, my uh, family comes from Belarus, but uh, people from that area are called Litvaks, based on the word uh, for Lithuania. And uh, she uh, visited there and wrote a report. I just want to give some of the highlights of the report because I, I found them of interest, and I hope the listeners also do. There are now uh, scholarly circles today which have interest in how the local people there recall the oppressing forces that were responsible for the annihilation of many thousands of Jews during the Holocaust. The majority of the locals, it appears, their feeling was they aren't really thinking so much about what happened to the Jews during the Holocaust. It was unclear whether they were distracted by the current wartime conflict 
between Russia and Ukraine, or if they find that discussions of the atrocities during the Holocaust are too complicated to confront, and they would rather avoid them entirely. They don't want to know what their grandparents and great-grandparents did. By the way, I met a uh, Lithuanian uh, woman here about a year ago uh, who found out that her father her grandfather were Nazis, and she in turn, because of this, became very devoted to remembering the history of what happened to the Jews in those areas. So the people there apparently have uh, some sort of uh, conflict in their own minds. Uh, I think there is a techno, uh, technical word for it, which escapes me at the moment. At any rate, according to this uh, tour, tourist who visited the area, there is a quasi-modern neighborhood near the old Jewish quarter, the ruins of the great synagogue of Vilna, which was monstrous, lay lie buried beneath a building that the Soviets built during the war to replace and conceal any vestige of the synagogue's very existence. The Soviets did not entirely achieve their goal. The synagogue's ruins are still intact underground, and there is a, an excavation site next to the Soviet building, which was accessible. So although the Russians tried to do away with any Jewish memory in uh, Lithuania, they haven't been entirely successful. If you're looking for Jewish roots, you can find them. Uh, Vilnius, by the way, is a very modern city. There are more people in electric scooters than there were in automobiles. The city is green and clean, bright and beautiful, and full of young people who sit at outdoor cafes enjoying conversation and cappuccino coffee. By the way, I saw the same thing when I visited there about uh, 20 years ago. At any rate, the uh, in Riga, which is the capital of uh, Latvia, bears indelible traces of the Jewish past. The um, there is a vitality of the Russian language among the Jews, not among the non-Jews. I remember the uh, Riga has a Chabad-centered school, as well as another Jewish school that welcomes students from all backgrounds and religious uh, and religions interested in learning about Jewish culture. Both these schools teach students to be literate in Russian not in Latvian. This is because many Latvian Jews of all generations speak Russian among themselves and in their households in keeping with the Jewish tradition of, of maintaining literacy in Russia. My own grandparents spoke uh, often spoke Russian to each other, although the, their major language, of course, was Yiddish. And there are concerns that because of the current Russian incursion into Ukraine, these schools may eventually eliminate teaching Russian from the curriculum. The, reg the regular use of the Russian language within the Riga Jewish community is a very sensitive issue that should not be discussed publicly. 
but apparently it's too complicated for people from the outside to understand. However, the attempt to preserve the Russian language within this community uh, is sort of reminiscent of promotions of Yiddish as the official language of the Jews. It's noteworthy in this regard that on September 19th of this year, the Baltic states and Poland officially ceased to issue short-stay tourist visas to Russian citizens and seeking to enter Latvia or Lithuania. The implementation of this policy has no doubt elicited further contentious discussion of the official status of Russian within these Jewish schools. There is a dynamic community in which a past linguistic tradition still defines the Jewish community at least as part of its cultural identity today, having nothing to do with religion. So I just wanted to share that, that, that brief uh, uh, item with the listeners because I read a report for this woman who had visited the, the uh, communities there and I find, and these are communities that thousands, thousands upon thousands of Jews lived there, and they were wiped out, uh, wiped out by the Germans and their local collaborators. I think uh, anytime someone goes there and writes a report, uh, that we mention it because I think we also have to keep that memory alive in as many ways as we can. Now, having said that, I want to go on to a different subject, which is the terrorism here in Israel and how it relates to Jerusalem. Um, in the wake of a deadly wave of terrorism that hit Israeli cities beginning back in March, the Israeli army launched what's called Operation Break the Wave to reduce the threat and, that, and this has been going on ever since. The um, operations focused first on the northern West Bank city of Jenin and later Nablus, which we call Shem, with the core hubs of Palestinian terror activities presently located. <coughs> now, throughout the security escalation, it seems reasonable to believe that mixed Jewish and Arab cities in Israel including Ramla, Lud, Jerusalem, and Acre, could, from one moment to the next, erupt into violence, just as they did so dramatically in May of 2021. At that time, Israel was fighting Hamas in Gaza in what was called the Operation Guardian of the Walls. The spark for that conflict was uh, in Jerusalem where clashes between Palestinians and Israel police on the Temple Mount, together with subsequent incidents of violence, provided Hamas with the pretense to fire rockets from Gaza. Um, and Islamic agitators used the violence to incite unrest among Arab Israelis, which is very significant. <coughs> In mid-October, the violence once again tore through the Eastern Jerusalem, only this time it was rapidly quelled by police without spreading to new arenas. While it's res it resurfaced, resurfaced on occasion, 
As the month progressed, police have so far kept the flames low, preventing them from spreading out of control. Now, this development is a reminder of a core principle that underlines regional stability, and that is the key lies in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has always been the issue that could blow up the region. It's a volcano, volcano always smoldering, and the Israeli police is the lid on that volcano. If the volcano blows, it takes the West Bank with it, and as recent events have shown, Gaza and Arab areas inside uh, Israel itself uh, could blow up. Jerusalem is under the exclusive territorial jurisdiction of the Israeli police. That's quite interesting, meaning that it and no other agency has the main say on how to respond to the daily challenges that arise in Jerusalem. So, policing Jerusalem is a constant balancing act between the need to be forceful in the face of Palestinian aggression and attacks on Israeli police and Jewish residents of eastern Jerusalem and the need to pull back and push for calm. Much is at stake and depends on the good judgment of police commanders on the ground who are always walking a tightrope. Israeli police achieves this balance by deploying top-level commanders to the front lines to take direct charge of policing operations. That's what happens in Jerusalem. The, uh, these um, commanders are sent with orders not to leave the border police and other units on their own to deal with the difficult issues that land on them. This means directly overseeing orders or when to open fire in cases where lies are at risk and when to deploy non-lethal crowd control, such as smoke bombs and stun grenades, in order to deal with disturbances in a controlled manner. During the uprising in October, Palestinian youth hurled firebombs and rocks and launched fireworks directly at security forces as well as buildings in which Jews reside. Such attacks are potentially lethal, but police nevertheless employ careful considerations when they respond. Now, equipping, equipping riot, riot police with the most advanced protective gear makes personnel feel safer and prevents them from choosing the fiercest responses in such situations. And this is something that the police have learned. In other words, you equip the police well, and they will respond in a less drastic way. Dealing with such intense rioting and dispersing the rioters is a full profession, and the border police and their special units excel in this profession. The fact that there are members of Knesset who knowingly come to the area to take part in provocations only makes life more complicated for the police, which must deploy large numbers of forces to the scene to prevent such situations from spinning out of control 
or becoming further inflamed. Now, there is no doubt that intelligence plays a critical role in both containing and thwarting all these incidents. In 2021, the police and the Shin Bet Domestic Intelligence Agency and the Army discovered that intelligence coordination between them was lacking. Since then, they have taken steps to optimize intelligence sharing and have significantly improved their capabilities, not just in Jerusalem, but throughout Israel. Now, police made dozens of arrests in mid-October and were able to significantly calm the situation down, which reflects a satisfactory performance and one that has improved over the past year. Now, the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Shuafat, where a terrorist gunman exited a vehicle and shot dead an Israeli border patrolman in October, represents a unique operational change. This terrorist, who was later killed after opening fire outside another Israel community in the West Bank, fled the scene, compelling police to place the area under a local temporary closure to facilitate the search for the government. Now, <coughs> despite these incidents, prayers at the Western Wall went on as normal and visitors continued to ascend the Temple Mount. Tens of thousands of Jews prayed at the Western Wall. Tens of thousands of Muslims worshipped at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The police ability to enable such mass religious activities while proactively tackling riot and, and neighbors just a few meters away, uh, stones throw away from the religious sites, is an exceptional achievement that cannot be taken for granted. It's really unusual. Just a few feet away from where uh, the police are running down and shooting terrorists, People, both Muslims and Jews, are praying. During the month, this month of unrest, the border police flex what you can call a new muscle that it received as part of the lessons learned for the events of 2021. That to have something now known as the Israel National Guard, the, the, the part of the border police. It's called up reserve companies as means to help deal with personnel requirements. These forces are heavily focused on counter-rioting and counter-terrorism missions, and this is their specialty. <laughs> Throughout the month, police followed up on intelligence to thwart attacks, swarmed hot spots in large numbers, made arrests based on accurate information and were able to home in on insiders and rioters. These included fishing out the main agitators on social media and arresting those using online platforms to instigate violence. All of these actions helped create a deterrence. All this is happening, by the way, 
less than a mile away from where I live, and yet we here in this part of Jerusalem don't feel it. That shows how effective the security forces are. The, uh, there are situa situational assessments are carried out quite frequently by the Jerusalem District of the Israeli Police to keep the organizational finger on the pulse of events together with the Shin Bet and the IDF. These assessments resulted in decisions such as placing police officers along the streets of the old city just tens of meters apart, creating a high degree of visible securities. <clears throat> when you take a walk to the old city and you see the border patrol there, it gives you a feeling of security. I know this on a personal level. The uh, Israeli police finds itself facing the most sensitive decisions regarding Jerusalem, including those that touch on the Temple Mount. There is tremendous sensitivity in this area, especially around the Temple Mount. It's so great that many of these decisions are brought to the attention of the government and to the Prime Minister himself. So, the past two years have demonstrated beyond any doubts how internal security is critical. While external threats are major, Israel has invested far more in dealing with them than it has in domestic security. Yet the threat, the domestic threat, is clear to all. So I just wanted to share that with the listeners, many of whom visit the old city and don't feel the tension. I'll be back next time. Thanks for listening. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Garrett from Tennessee. 
me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 